This is episode 191 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Laser-Based Cell Manipulation with Dr. Marina Madrid. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our list of upcoming guests at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar, where you can find out everything you need to know about future episodes. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring doctors Johan Jacobson, Stephen Sullivan, and more. That's at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar. Today, we have Dr. Marina Madrid from Salino Biotech on the podcast to talk about the company's vision to make personalized autologous cell therapies viable at large scale. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Cell Therapy News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing the latest research news, jobs, and events in cell therapy research. Use Cell Therapy News to stay current with the latest cell therapy, gene therapy, and regenerative medicine research. Subscribe at www.celltherapynews.com. All right, I'm starting off the roundup with the show, which it's, you know, this is an old, old story, okay? It's one of the oldest narratives out there, the uh, whole, you know, the Dracula thing, you know, to reinvigorate yourself, revitalize yourself by <laughs> sucking the blood of the youth. I mean, is it, is it me? That's an old story for me. I've been hearing that since I was a young lad. Anyway, um, the story here, though, the science element of it, it's, it's about this whole kind of parabiosis thing, the whole rejuvenation idea and, and aging, really. And what are the biological bases of aging, in this case, in the hematopoietic system, as I alluded to. Um, and it's a story uh, out of the Jackson Labs from Jennifer Traubage's lab. Uh, and it's based on this idea. Uh, that that there's we now pretty much understand it that you can with these parabiosis experiments you can revitalize old tissues um, but there's really limited understanding of how mechanistically you go from like a vital young organ system to old you know the order of events in the process of aging uh, related to decline they're not described. Uh, in the hematopoietic system, there's all, many hallmarks of hematopoietic aging, um, including uh, expansion of hematopoietic stem cells. You get a reduction in the lymphoid progenitors, and you get a bias towards myeloid uh, progenitors. Okay, um, and obviously, you've got to assume that because we're talking about hematopoietic stem cells here, that the bone marrow, you know, the microenvironment where the hematopoietic stem cells reside in large part has got to be a critical regulator here because the bone marrow microenvironment does everything when it comes to hematopoietic stem progenitor cells. Um, so there's uh, evidence too that if you target uh, old microenvironment, you can rejuvenate and rescue that hematopoietic stem cell aging phenotype. And also if you take old hematopoietic stem cells and you put them into a young microenvironment, you, you kind of get rid of this, this myeloid bias that you see. So there's all these little nuts and bolts, points of evidence suggesting that one, there's a phenotype, there's a hematopoietic aging phenotype that's defined by this myeloid bias. And two, uh, you can rescue this phenotype and in part at least uh, do uh, owing to bone marrow microenvironmental cues. Okay. So what did they do here? Uh, the Traubridge group, what they did is they, they really ironed out the, this, this order of operations. How do you go from young bone marrow to, to old? And they showed that the timing, essentially one, was one point of the story showing that in, in middle age of a mouse during that middle age, uh, you know, midlife crisis for the mice happens about two months, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you get the hallmarks of the aging hematopoietic um, hematopoietic stem cell phenotype. Uh, and the, the microenvironment is critical uh, to hematopoietic aging. Um, and here we go. It was, I'm bearing the lead here because it's in the title, but uh, it, it really is largely in part due to decreased 
levels of IGF um, in the middle-aged bone marrow microenvironment. And you can uh, stimulate uh, middle-aged hematopoietic stem cells with IGF and rescue all those hallmarks, namely the myeloid bias. Um, and that's kind of it. I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty basic and straightforward story, but I think the science is super strong. And, and it's really the implications here that I want to circle back to, which are important because IGF, it's been implicated that in, in lifespan, you know, it's, it's known that if you reduce IGF one, you know, it, it leads to increased lifespan. There's a lot of genetic anomalies in humans where they have reduced our, our attenuated IGF receptor signaling and they have longer lifespans and in specific tissues it manifests with reduced IGF signaling. But here it's the counter. There's a cost to reduced IGF signaling and that's a cost in the, in the hematopoietic um, compartment. So it, it makes you realize that evolutionarily these things are tuned. You may ask, hey, why do we have so much IGF? We could live forever without it or with less of it, but uh, there's a cost clearly and I, I think uh, the Trowbridge group here has really zeroed in um, on, on what the specifics of, of that cost is. Yeah, I actually didn't know that about IGF, the fact that if you drop it, you can actually prolong lifespan. That's a pretty nifty study. Um, you know, this reminds me of actually some of the work that David Sinclair is doing. He's one of the aging gurus. Maybe we should have him on the show at some point. But you're right. You you mentioned parabiosis at the very beginning of your segment there. This isn't exactly a parabiosis story, but I think the concept is the same, right? You're thinking about transferring factors that may rejuvenate older mice and eventually older humans. I think this is actually something that Silicon Valley is taking quite a close look at, this concept of parabiosis. And I think there are some clinics out there that are actually doing this kind of stuff. Uh, Not encouraging it at all, <laughs> but it is a reality. Yuck, yuck. I don't want to see what goes on in those clinics, but I'm not surprised at all. I think when we talk about, you know, the first thing I'm sure everyone's jumping to in, in pharma, particularly looking at this paper, said, hey, IGF, we've known about that for years, let's go. Um, we could treat maybe rescue some hematopoietic uh, phenotypes there, make it more robust. But the, it should be noted that a lot of these assays, you know, they, they look in vitro, you know, ex vivo rescue of hematopoietic stem cells in response to IGF-1. It should be noted that like IGF-1 is super regulated locally in the body for a reason. It's circulating, you know, you get growth hormone pumped into you and your liver puts out a bolus of IGF that circulates throughout your entire body. So at every tissue, there's like a local level of IGF regulation via these IGF BPs, binding proteins, that act as either, you know, attenuating signal or increasing bioavailability of, of the IGF ligand. So just dumping IGF into circulation isn't really gonna do the trick here necessarily. There's probably similar regulatory apparatus at the bone marrow microenvironment that would preclude any, you know, aggressive perturbations of the system. But, you know, I'm not saying that we can't drug the IGF axis. I just say we got to be careful. Absolutely. And you didn't even talk about cancer at all, right? So oh, yeah. cancer, the cancer microenvironment is all about secreted growth factors and how those growth factors are actually being co-opted by the cancer cells to proliferate like crazy. And speaking of proliferation, I'm going to shift into a paper that actually came out in science not too long ago. It is a heart paper, but it's also a zebrafish paper. I'm a big fan of zebrafish. And this is sort of a plug for our future guest, Dr. Ken Poss, a heart slash zebrafish expert from our alma mater, Duke University. Go Blue Devils. He'll be on the show, I think, at some point in the summer. But this is actually a paper coming from the lab of Kazu Kikuchi, who is at the... Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute in New South Wales, down under in Australia. First author is Masahito Ogata. Title of the paper is Cruple-like factor one is a core cardiomyogenic trigger in zebrafish. Why do I like zebrafish? Because actually Dr. Ken Poss's work is the reason that I got into cardiac biology. The zebrafish have this incredible regenerative potential that a lot of us in this field know about. You can actually cut off a portion of the cardiac ventricle, and if the fish doesn't die from blood loss, it will grow back. The ventricle is going to grow back. And this is uh, the mechanisms as to actually how this ends up happening are still not completely understood. I mean, obviously, Dr. Paz has done a ton of work on this over the years, over the last few decades. Uh, but this is talking about KLF-1, and they found that here it's actually a, a factor that can trigger the cardiomyogenic 
proliferation process in zebrafish. So it is known through the work of Dr. Poss and others like Dr. Poss that cardiac regeneration requires actually the dedifferentiation, so the uh, reversion of the differentiated cardiomyocytes in the heart into a, a sort of ste pseudo stem cell state and ultimately proliferation of the mature cardiomyocytes. But the mechanisms regarding that kind of plasticity of going from differentiated to dedifferentiated cardiomyocytes isn't really clear. And that's really critical. we got to figure out what's going on in that process so we can better understand how these zebrafish are actually able to regenerate their hearts and maybe way down the road we can harness this in human hearts as well. So here they actually identify that the cardiogenic cardiomyogenic protein, cripple-like factor one, KLF1, is induced in the adult zebrafish myocardium upon the injury. So you can resect a portion of the ventricle, and apparently this KLF1 is induced upon injury. And when you inhibit KLF1 function, it actually doesn't affect heart development. So that's important. It's not really critical for the role of heart development, but it is critical for regeneration. So if you inhibit KLF1, it's uh, you're not going to get these zebrafish regenerating their hearts as easily. So that's pretty powerful. And also, they did the obvious op opposite experiment. If you transiently overactivate KLF1, it's sufficient to actually expand the mature myocardium in the uninjured hearts. So even in healthy hearts, you can just spike in some KLF1 or hyperactivate KL KLF1, and it's going to expand the myocardium. And how does it do it? It do, does it through epigenetic reprogramming of the cardiac transcription factor networks, these famous factors, famous transcription factors like NKX2.5, GATA factors, all these things. They're regulated by KLF1, okay? And that's sort of how this dedifferentiation and proliferation process happens. It's supported by the rewiring of the metabolism, the mitochondrial metabolism. Obviously, if you're, if you're talking about heart, you got to talk about metabolism too. So it's actually inducing a switch from oxidative respiration to anabolic pathways. And it really establishes KLF1 as potentially a master regulator of the cardiomyocyte renewal process in adult zebrafish hearts. And yeah, of course, ultimately, the long-term vision, and they alluded to this in this paper, is like, oh, what if we can harness this for human hearts as well? I mean, that's obvious, but I'm actually really interested in seeing how conserved this is in other species that have this really amazing regenerative capacity, like the axolotl, for example, or the salamander. Forget about humans for a second. I mean, we all love humans. This is the human stem cell podcast for the most part, <laughs> but I'm interested in the, the dev bio side of it too, you know? So... Don't hate on the zebrafish. Very powerful. I love the zebrafish. It's beautiful. Uh, I think, though, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you ended with that, Colonel, uh, because I was going to ask, is it frustrating for you now you're still, even though you're getting up there, buddy, you're not a young man anymore, but uh, you still represent the, the younger generation, I would say, of stem cell biologists, who I wonder, I'm always curious about this, when you look at a paper like this, are you like, yeah, well... How am I going to apply this to my organoids where I'm making a heart to save lives? Is there like a frustration? I don't want to say you dismiss it. Of course not. There's, there's so much to be learned and to be applied to your own system here. But is this kind of like, quote unquote, old fashioned science uh, for, for the young uh, bucks like you um, who, are, who are working in systems where you're, like, you're literally trying to make a heart from scratch? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate this sort of work in part because I have a personal connection to this kind of work. This is part of the reason that I actually am a cardiac biologist, like I said. But, you know, you can't get over the beauty of a simple study like this. It's, you know, give. of course, we talk about organoids and CRISPR and all these amazing new technologies a lot, and we should. They're exceptionally powerful and they're pushing the frontiers of what we know. But it, it's sometimes it's just a simple technology like the zebrafish, a simple genetic system that you can easily manipulate that can lead to some of these really beautiful fundamental discoveries that ultimately can push the boundary and perhaps be translated into human. We actually talked about Drosophila in the same way too. Drosophila, zebrafish, even yeast in the past, these are powerful model organisms. And yeah, if we can yeah, of course, we're going to plug the organoid here on the show a lot. But I'm just saying, don't forget about the little guys. Don't forget about the lower vertebrates, too, Dan. <laughs> I heard you say yeast, B. I mean, whoa, you're going back. But, yeah. um, 
way back to the east. Uh, but listen, listen, that's a very inspirational. Um, I'm, I agree with you 100%. All you even little baby infant scientists out there, what Arun said. But this is the Human Stem Cell Podcast, homie. So let's Sorry. get back to it. All right. <laughs> this is a story, I mean, arguably, maybe not a stem cell story, you could say. So maybe I'm running a bit off the path here as well. But um, it's definitely human. And I think that's the real strength of this. This is a, a story that's near to my heart. I work in an IVF clinic. Um, and you rarely see stories like this in high-profile journals. They're usually relegated to the niche. But, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going with it. I'm taking this. And it's a stem cell story if I say it's a stem cell story. It's my show. Um, well, not my show. It's our show. So just forgive <laughs> me, Arun. Uh, bear with me while I go through this human embryo story. It's a nature cell biology, which is about as high as it gets, unless you're talking about human cloning. Um, and this is really also near to my heart because there's a great debate out there in the IVF clinics, the world over about mosaicism and aneuploidy. Okay. Uh, you know, we all know what mosaicism is, but if you don't, uh, in an embryo and particularly in IVF, uh, it's a really slipshod process, it turns out, with humans. It's not like the mouse where they all look alike, essentially. Well, they are essentially clones. Um, but in human embryogenesis, pre-implantation stages, it's willy-nilly. It does No embryo looks like the other. And you get a lot of inclusions and weird-looking cells that probably aren't going to make it to the end, right? And that's mosaicism. Some of those cells are chromosomally abnormal. They have aneuploidies. Um, that you wouldn't believe, but they can ca be carried alongside and resorbed or extruded or gotten rid of somehow, and they're not irreconcilable with a healthy, happy baby. Okay, but still, most IVF centers out there, they when they test using this pre-implantation genetic uh, testing for aneuploidy, PGTA, they'll test, and if they see that the embryo is aneuploid or mosaic, they just won't transfer because why risk it, right? In fact, more than 80% of embryos, if you look at them, will contain aneuploid blastomers. If you really break down, take 100 blast blastocysts and break them down to the single blastomers, which you can't really do because it would be a waste, but 80% of them will have some kind of aneuploidy and only around one in eight fertilized oocytes are aneuploid. So that's a big disconnect there, right? Um, and you know, it's a problem really because a lot of these women don't have a ton of eggs or embryos. And so when you use all the euploid ones, you, you, you have a bunch of aneuploid or, or mosaic embryos there, and you're tempted to use them, and, and maybe you should. Um, but it's really controversial, okay? And so we test, we test, we test, uh, because it's proposed that by testing and transferring only euploid embryos, you improve delivery rates and you reduce miscarriages. Perfect. Good logic. Um, but whether or not the PGTA really improves outcomes, it's still very controversial, and I think that the jury is really out on that. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it's not in, in all patients. Uh, a PGT all uh, approach, as they call it, is really not beneficial to many patients, only to really some uh, and a minority at that. Uh, so this paper, what they did, they just went for it. You know, and this is Ali Brivanlu, my former mentor, where I did my doctoral degree, and he's not afraid to just go for it. You know, we were we went crazy early when I was there. We did some human ESLs and mouse embryos when no one was even thinking about it. We did it safely. We did it right. But we did it. That was in 2006, people. So he's not afraid. And he teamed up with Norbert Gleitscher, who's a god in the IVF world. Um, he's at, well, Ali's at Rockefeller University. Norbert's at Rockefeller and the Foundation for Reproductive Medicine. Okay, what they did here is uh, they took first 32 women uh, and they transferred 77 blastocysts in these 32 women, all of them were either mosaic or aneuploid. They just went for it. Uh, from this, they got nine clinical pregnancies, which isn't the best rate, but these were all abnormal, right? Um, so that's a surprise in itself. Uh, and there were four miscarriages, okay? But there were five uh, that went to term. I think it was four or five babies that went to term. So right there, it's like, all right, and they were normal. Um, and only two out of all those nine clinical pregnancies uh, four of them didn't go to term and four of them miscarried. And two of those uh, show that they had the same aneuploidy that was diagnosed on the front end. So it's not to say that, that PGTA is useless, right? Like you do PGTA, it's aneuploid going in. And it turned out it's aneuploid coming out and it miscarries. So 
there is some risk to transferring these mosaic or aneuploid embryos. Um, but the real take home here is that there were live births. And the, and the, the reason why it's a nature cell bio is that with the help of Ali, they went basic and took it down to the mechanistic level here by using these micro-patterned human gastroloids that Ali invented. Uh, and what they showed on the cellular level is that aneuploid cells are depleted from the primary embryonic germ layers, but they're not depleted from the extraembryonic tissue. Okay. And that's huge. That's a major insight that has tremendous ramifications that I'm going to circle back to. But they show that it's a BMP4 dependent um, apoptosis that mediates this loss of cells, uh, specifically in the primary germ layers. Uh, and they show that like it corrects essentially that in the, in the, in the primary germ layers, aneuploidies will essentially go away. Um, whereas in the troph, they'll, they'll, uh, be, they'll hang around. Um, and when they looked in actual embryos, they found that this is also recapitulated. And by day three, there's a significant decline in aneuploidy in embryos. So they start to resolve, uh, the process. So why is that important? Because at day three, if you're starting to resolve aneuploidy and you're starting to shift the balance so that there's more aneuploid cells in the trophectoderm, two things. One, the straight ahead thing that they proven on the front end is, hey, why are we holding back all these aneuploid embryos? They shouldn't be withheld. They can make live-born babies, right? Which is probably still controversial in light of the fact that there were two um, miscarriages that were actually aneuploid. You wonder if maybe that could lead to a live birth or I guess uh, selective termination, but still risky. Um, but the real thing for me, the take home that was, that was really important is just in our routine and our routine blastocyst biopsy. Okay. We take cells from the trophectoderm, right? Because the trophectoderm is very robust and you can get multiple cells. Uh, but this study is suggesting that the aneuploids are really enriched. And in fact, like relegated to the trophectoderm. So not only do they not reflect the, the real, you know, state of, of, of ploidy in the embryo proper, but, um, you know, you're getting a lot of false negative, also false positives, And we may have to question PGTA fundamentally our method. So I think it's a, it's a nice confluence of clinical medicine uh, and basic science that is really near and dear to my interests and, and research focus. So I love this story. Yeah, and I can understand why. I think this reproductive medicine is one of the two most practical, in my opinion, practical clinical applications of stem cell biology, the other one being uh, blood and you know hematopoietic cell transplantation. I think the ultimate goal here is a beautiful one to increase the number of embryos that might be viable and available for, for transfer. And of course, incorporating the, the gastroloids here is, a, is an amazing way to validate some of this work. I did have a question for you since this is sort of your, your wheelhouse. When it comes to actually the available pool of embryo embryos available, you know, that are good for transfer, is it low? Like, do you not just, do you just not get a lot? And so would this be really game changing if we can expand this to aneuploid embryos and really, uh, you know, set the bar that way? What's, what's the limitation there? Absolutely. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about your, your young, uh, good prognosis patients, but you know, more and more the patients that we see who are deferring childbearing to their later years, uh, who, you know, even patients who have maybe some kind of iatrogenic related infertility, maybe they had cancer and chemo and that has, has undermined their egg supply. For these patients, even just poor responders, patients who are older or have some kind of, you know, idiopathic infertility, for these patients, you can get a cycle where most of their eggs fertilize and give rise to aneuploid embryos. And for many patients, there are a surfeit. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 10 plus embryos on ice, but they're all mosaic or aneuploid. And so these wow. patients keep doing cycles looking mm -hmm. for euploid embryos because it's not just live birth. You know, there's a real premium now on single embryo transfer. And the, the expense of this focus on single embryo transfer is that we're excluding all the, all the imperfect ones. And, and the challenge there is, you know, what's worse? Um, the risk of a woman undergoing a cycle and having a miscarriage or 
being shot up with fertility drugs ad infinitum, you know, in, into her early 40s. So it, it's, a, it's a calculus here. Um, but I think a lot of couples and a lot of, of clinicians would be happy to roll the dice on mosaic embryos. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy answer. I think from the perspective of somebody who's trying to become pregnant, you know, if you could increase your chances of having a, a viable and healthy birth, then perhaps you would take it. It's not a perspective that I, you know, have firsthand experience obviously with. I don't, I never will, but you know, I can understand the the hesitation and the hope associated with this kind of work. And our final paper today is also so, sort of focused on fertility and, and reproductive medicine. We're talking about a Hans Cleaver's paper, and it is a cervical organoid paper. So it's a cell stem cell manuscript titled, titled Patient-Derived Organoids Model Cervical Tissue Dynamics and Viral Oncogenesis in Cervical Cancer. Of course, Hans Cleaver's, so you know we're going to talk about organoids and primary organoids. He's making all sorts of organoids. They we just talked about these tissue, those tear creating organoids a couple of weeks ago, where they're able to quote unquote cry in a dish. But here we're talking about cervical organoids. Now we know about cervical cancer. It's a common malignancy, a common cancer that's caused by different things, but most notably HPV, human papillomavirus. And the goal here was to establish in vitro systems that you can use to study the cervical epithelium and the different cancers that are derived from the cervical epithelium. Here, they actually created a long-term culturing protocol for both the ecto and ecto-cervical epithelium that can generate these 3D organoids, and they can be stable. They're stably recapitulating the two tissues of origin. And so they not only used HPV, but they also used a herpes simplex virus to infect these organoids and to show, yeah, they can serve as a model for potentially sexually transmitted infections too. And I think one really cool thing about this paper was to make these organoids in the first place, all they used was a pap brush, which is, you know, uh, critical for a pap smear, which is something that women around the world get every year. And so all you need is this, the material from that pap brush, a very small amount of tissue to actually start and create these organoids and create a biobank of not only healthy organoids, but also tumoroids, tumor organoids derived from patients who actually have cervical cancer. So one of them actually also carried the HPV-30 subtype, which is uh, another mechanistic implication for carcinogenesis and how carcinogenesis may arise in these cervical cancers and how you can use these tumoroids to actually model the onset of, of carcinogenesis. And it's a, um, you know, they wrap things up by looking at chemotherapeutic agents, different chemo regimens that may be able to alleviate the cancer phenotype in these tumoroids. So it's a really, I think, a beautiful platform for looking at not only healthy cervical tissue, but also cancer cervical tissue. And again, my favorite part of this study was the simplicity in which you can actually make the organoids. It's, it's a very small sample of tissue, and there's a huge downstream application for studying cancer, for studying healthy cervical development, and perhaps studying sexually, uh, sexually transmitted infections as well. So Hans Cleavers, yet another organoid. Who knows what's next? I think we've covered pretty much all the types of tissue, haven't we, Dalen? I, I, that's what I always assume. But then the next week he comes out with some other, some other <laughs> organoid, the oids on this guy. He's got a lot of oids. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, you know, I got to hand it to him. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you're so used to Hans Cleaver's doing this, Hans Cleaver's doing that, that it kind of takes away from the, the impact, right? You know, he just had the one similar, very similar to this where he could get the kidney organoids from urine, right? Which is like, okay, like, that's easy. Here again, not as easy, but pretty easy. Uh, mm -hmm. Minimally invasive. And it just, I'm, I imagine 20, 30 years down the line, like, it's probably routine. You have some of this way you have whatever CBC now. For specialists, you could have you know, a urine culture that goes into cells, you know, tissue culture for organoid and, and diagnosis and whatever and all that. Um, so like, yeah, Cleavers ha has his name on all this stuff uh, and he deserves it. 
I think that he's, he's maybe he should take a step back and leave some oids for someone else, you know, <laughs> come on, my friend. Um, but please, you know, Hans, if you're listening, come back on the show and tell us about your last eight or nine studies, because we got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Come back on the show, but leave some oids for the rest of us. Yeah. It's a powerful technology and we're always talking about, oh, are we ever going to run out of tissue types? But we think about healthy tissue. We can think about all sorts of healthy tissue types that you can make these organoids from. And then we got to think about all the different types of cancers that arrive from these tissue types as well. So it's almost like it's an infinite number of oids that we can <laughs> develop. So I think, Dr. Cleavers, you're going to be in business for a long time. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, you know, one person I know who might be applying those oids in the near future is our guest, Marina Madrid at Salino. You know, their mission is to make pretty much all the cells and all the tissues. Uh, we're going to talk to her about that. But before we get there, I got a message from Stem Cell. It's once again time to celebrate your research. The hashtag Stem Selfie, that's C-E-L-L-F-I-E, contest is back. Show the world what stem cell research looks like through your eyes by entering your best cell image at stemcell.com slash stemselfie2021. Do that by April 30th to enter. That's STEM Selfie, C-E-L-L-F-I-E. All right, now on to our guest. All right, guys. I'm delighted today to introduce Dr. Marina Madrid, who co-founded Salino Biotech right out of her doctoral degree at Harvard University. Salino's vision is to make personalized autologous cell therapies viable at large scale for the first time. The platform combines label-free imaging and high-speed laser editing with machine learning to automate cell reprogramming, expansion, and differentiation in a closed cassette format, enabling thousands of patient samples to be processed in parallel in a single facility. Marina, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is ours. Thanks for being on. Um, you know, we're kind of wading into waters that are uncharted, uh, virtually at least uncharted for us here at the podcast, biophysics. Uh, but we are very familiar with the end point of your efforts, which are cell therapy. Um, and I, at least for one, personally perk up with the mention of lasers. So I'm amped. <laughs> For this conversation, but just to orient the listeners and us a, a little bit, could you give us an overview of the way that you and others are applying and integrating the tools that exist in the biophysics sphere to stem cell-based systems? Absolutely. So we're taking a very multidisciplinary, convergent approach. So just like you mentioned, we're combining laser processing, image-guided machine learning with stem cell biology. Um, and it's one of those situations where the whole ends up being greater than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? I think I do really believe that a lot of the big unsolved problems require more than one perspective in order to solve them. And so that's what we're doing. We're taking these experts from all these different fields, my background. So I did my bachelor's degree in biophysics, which at UCLA at the time, it was really just a physics degree with I think one biochem class added to it. Um, but my PhD is 100% in applied physics. It's not even really in biophysics. I was in a femtosecond laser lab. But the interesting thing about lasers, which are super cool, so I like that you appreciate them. Um, <laughs> lasers can do so many things, but they are especially useful in biology because it allows you to manipulate cells in a way that is compatible with a sterile process. And as you are very familiar with, sterility is incredibly important in cell biology. And lasers allow you to physically interact with cells without sticking your hands in and poking around. Um, so that's what makes lasers so cool. The, the way we're using lasers, we use lasers to create bubbles. But you can very precisely control the size of bubbles. So the size of a bubble generated by a laser is directly proportional to the energy of the laser fluence. Hmm. So if you have a laser pulse with very little energy, you get a tiny bubble. If you have a laser pulse with a ton of energy, you get a massive bubble. And these bubbles 
do different things. So if you create a small enough bubble, you can just poke a hole in a cell membrane, deliver cargoes into cells like gene editing tools, CRISPR-Cas9, things like that. But if you create a large enough bubble, you can actually kill, ablate, remove unwanted cells. Um, and this is already being used in some biomedical applications, right? So everyone's familiar with LASIK eye surgery. You're ablating some of the tissue there to reshape parts of the parts of the eye. So it's that sort of process using lasers to interact with biological materials um, because it allows you to do so in a way that is more sterile than sticking your hands in and poking around, but it also gives you a ton of precision. So with a laser, for example, the laser that we're using, it has a beam spot diameter of a little less than two microns. The average adherent cell is definitely larger than two microns. So what that means is not only can we target individual cells without targeting, targeting neighboring cells, but you can target individual regions of individual cells. Um, so that's why, that's why I was so attracted to this technology at the beginning of my PhD and why I decided to focus on it because I wasn't, I wasn't using lasers in undergrad. In my undergrad research, we were, uh, we were focused on microfluidics. But in general, I like applying physics-based processes like nanofabrication, microfluidics, and lasers to biological problems because I just think it's cool to take another perspective and approach towards solving that problem. You end up coming up with things that, that you don't really see in the literature that folks haven't thought about before. You got it. I mean, that's modern biomedical research in a nutshell. It's extremely collaborative. You're getting and pulling ideas from all over the place, including biophysics, including lasers, pew, pew, pew. That's exactly what our lasers sound like, by the way. If you're in the lab, you like, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I, was gonna, I wasn't going to ask, but, you know, I'm glad you confirmed that's, for yeah. me. So that's what I imagined. And, you know, I've said it before on the show, we don't have too many folks on the industry and startup side of things. And oh. that's why I'm actually really happy that you're here, Marina. You're actually one of the founders of Salino, as Dalen mentioned, which is a biotech company focusing on using tissue engineering, nanotechnology, machine learning and lasers, pew, 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 to precisely manipulate iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cell reprogramming and differentiation. That's a lot of really hot technologies. And it seems like a stem cell biologist dream, to be honest with you. So tell us more about- That's good to hear. That's good yeah. to hear. <laughs> I'm a big fan. So tell us more about Selino, your platform, and how you can actually more specifically bring mature stem cell derived tissues closer to reality, since that's the, really the hope is to make these mature tissues, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so Salino started in the last year of my PhD. So I did my PhD in this femtosecond laser lab um, with Nabiha Saklayan. She's the CEO at Salino. And in the last year of our PhD, we were speaking to folks in the biology space. We'd actually just learned about induced pluripotent stem cells um, because we had started a collaboration with the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. But we were talking to different folks. One really pivotal conversation that we had was with Derek Rossi, who's um, most famous now for founding Moderna, and he expressed a ton of interest in our technology. And so we thought, okay, we should try to commercialize this technology, bring it to industry, but we didn't know exactly what problem to focus on. And we co-founded this company back in 2017, our three co-founders, myself, Nabia Saklayan, um, Matthias Wagner, we actually all have physics and engineering backgrounds. So our team is multidisciplinary, um, but the co-founders all have a physics and engineering spin on things. So we had incorporated, we knew the laser technology was cool, pew, 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 as you say, <laughs> but um, we didn't know what problem to focus on. And I think, I think this is a challenge that is common for platform technologies coming out of a PhD lab. You have a solution, you're trying to find the right problem to backfit it to. But we had found iPSCs. They are so cool, have the potential to turn into any cell type. That's super powerful. And then through more conversations with KOLs in this space, we realized that there was a, a bottleneck in terms of manufacturing iPSCs and iPSC-derived cell therapies. Um, I remember the first time I learned about how iPSCs are made. It's a very manual, labor-intensive process. It's almost painful to watch. You have a scientist looking at these cells, deciding based on their own experience, do these cells look good? Do these cells look bad? Physically scraping away the unwanted cells. So we're replacing that human visual selection part of the process with image-guided machine learning algorithms. Um, we're replacing the physical picking part of the process with this laser-based, bubble-mediated removal of cells. 
And, and that's how we're approaching this. It's, you know, we actually were very inspired by the semiconductor industry. I think the semiconductor industry is a super cool example of a time they took these complex processes. And I did a ton of na nanofabrication during my PhD. So I'm very familiar with these complex processes. They have multiple steps. Um, they're very precise down to the nanometer scale. But the semiconductor industry was able to automate the manufacturing of these pieces that were produced in a very complex way and ma manufacture them at massive volumes. And the reason is because they were able to automate the processes by taking optical approaches. So if you use an optical approach to characterization and an optical approach to actually manipulating the materials, what's nice about those optical approaches is that they're very easy to automate. They kind of take humans out of the equation. So we're, we're taking this optical approach to cell therapy manufacturing. Um, and it's just been so cool to build out our team because I have expertise in lasers and nanofabrication from my PhD, but I've been learning the stem cell biology through Salino, through our stem cell biologists. We have machine learning algorithm experts. AI is very hot right now, but I don't have any experience in AI. So it's, it's cool to kind of bring all these expert perspectives together and take a new approach to, um, to solving a problem that's been seen in the IPSC and the cell biology field for, for a while now. Yeah. And there's a, there's a really powerful, I mean, mega powerful idea, but it's also a simple idea uh, at the root of Selena, which is it's on the website. This isn't me making it up. Every human, every cell. Um, and I like that it capitalizes on one of the most fundamental principles and promises to the lay public you know, 20 years ago regarding the potential of stem cells. And we've made a lot of progress, tremendous progress, you could say, towards generating, I mean, pretty much all the cell types, right? You know, base, like as far as cells in a dish, it, it's, we've got them, almost all of them. You know, there's, there's a lot of them out there. So I'm not going to say we have all of them and who knows if they're really bona fide, right? Sure. Um, and now we got the organoids happen. I think uh, Hans Klavers has, has a list of 200 different organoids that he's planning to make. Um, and then we got the people making assembloids. Uh, uh, but the, the tissues and organs, which are another order of magnitude, I would say, in complexity above that, they still seem pretty far away. If, if the vision statement of Salino, if you were going to like upgrade, let's say 50-year vision, the new vision <laughs> statement, every human, every cell, every tissue. Hmm. Every organ. <laughs> I like that. I if, can totally see, you know, a hundred years into the future, whenever someone's born, they bank their cord blood cells because that's the best source for making iPSCs. And then you have this personalized iPSC bank. Maybe at age 12, you get into an accident and need reconstructive surgery. We can make autologous iPSC derived cartilage and bone. Exactly. So this is it. Th you develop AMD. We can make you new retinal this cells. This is so I think brilliant. That is the, yeah, maybe, this maybe is we aren't ambitious enough with every cell. <laughs> so you, you answered my first question there, which was the, what's the best source of cells? I like that with the umbilical cord. All right. But if you had to, to follow through on that and bring it to, to, you know, reality, the last part of that tagline, every tissue, what would you propose? I mean, is there a discussion in, in the group there? What's like the first best tissue or disease to deliver on in terms of like practicality and proof of principle? Like, is there, are, do you guys have eyes to moving to that scale? So first best tissue, that's an interesting question because a lot of times when I talk to folks in the regenerative medicine space, everyone has their, um, their favorite cell type or their favorite tissue type. I am personally very interested in skin because we're an autologous iPSC-derived cell company. Skin is a highly immunogenic organ, so you really need an autologous approach. It's tough It's tough to do allotransplants in skin. Um, that is a tissue that also has tons of platform potential. If you can make autologous iPSC-derived skin and maybe throw in some gene editing every once in a while, you could treat epidermolysis bullosa, which is a horrible, horrible disease. Um, you could treat chronic wounds, maybe acute wounds, if you could get the manufacturing process to be quick enough. Uh, there's cosmetic indications like scar revision. So I'm, I'm personally very interested in skin, hmm. but, but we're a platform company. So I think we will work in every space at some point. It's, you know, we'll take some time, but we really are interested in, in being involved in generating cell therapies for every cell every tissue, every organ. That is our big picture goal. 
every tissue, every organ, maybe starting with the skin. And if you want to work on every tissue, you're going to need some money, Marina. That's that's kind of a <laughs> fact, right? So yeah. on that note, we hear that you've actually recently closed a $16 million seed funding round at Selena to actually help advance some of the technologies that you're working on. So congrats, first of all. And yeah, but if we're going to talk about money, you have to talk about something else too, which is the cost of those autologous cell-based therapies that you're talking about. These things are pricey and it's a dream to have your own personalized IPS derived cells ready for transplantation and a heartbeat and just kind of like what you're talking about, but it's a costly dream, right? So in fact, places like Japan have actually started resorting to population level master IPS lines and true instead of these like truly personalized patient specific autologous cells for therapy in part because autologous therapy is cost prohibitive, prohibitive somewhat. So is this something that you all at Salino are thinking about? How do you actually bring down the cost of these autologous therapies and actually make them a little bit more accessible? Oh, yeah, it's 100% something we're thinking about. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, I know a lot of areas and groups are are using these HLA haplobanks and they're generating these HLA matched haplobanks. But Shinya Yamanaka's original dream was to be able to make autologous iPSCs for every Japanese individual in a low cost way. It's just been really, really tough to do. Um, so right now, if you were to go out, buy an autologous clinical grade iPSC line for an individual patient, it would cost almost a million dollars. And that's the number that's cited in the literature too. So obviously, you know, prohibitively costly for the average person who needs a cell therapy. And we don't want it would be such a shame if the science and technology existed to generate an iPSC-derived cell therapy, but what was preventing patients from receiving that cell therapy was cost. So this is something we've definitely thought a lot about. Our platform technology is has a lot of broad potential. We could work on making HLA-matched haplobanks, but we're really focused on the autologous piece because we want to make sure, A, that these patients are accessible to everyone. The HLA haplobanks, they don't cover everyone, especially in a place like the U.S. where we have such a genetically diverse population. So the modeling shows that in the U.S., you could make a 100-line HLA-matched haplobank, and it would cover at most 90% of the population. And it starts to plateau, too. So you can add more lines. You're never going to really cover 100% of the population. And by the way, those banks, they don't cover every segment of the population equally. So you make a 100-line HLA-matched haplobank in the U.S., it would cover a little over 75% of the Caucasian-American population, but less than 50% of the African-American population. I'm mixed race. I'm half Filipino, half Mexican. I doubt I could find an HLA haplobank line that matches me. Um, so this is, this is one of the reasons we're focusing on autologous. It's also safer for patients to not put them under immunosuppression. Um, but you're right. So far, it's been very prohibitively costly. Um, what's cool about automating processes, though, is that you can process more samples at any given time. So you can reduce your cost of manufacturing per sample. And according to our manufacturing cost models, we should actually be able to get the cost of making these patient-specific clinical-grade IPSC lines to below $50,000 per patient. Um, so, so that's what we're aiming for. Hmm. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, I, I agree with you on all those fronts, but the, that's acting like the company's just an IPS-making company. I mean, it's a platform company that's focused on automating a lot of processes, including differentiation. And I think that's that's a critical facet of your focus, right? Because if, let's say, the whole world pivots away from true IPS and we're doing a haplotype, then you can still capitalize on that. And I think the technologies you're developing are really critical. Computers, automation, they seem to be major factors in bringing down the cost, as you're alluding to. Um, Here, I'm I'm mostly thinking about like robotics, right? But machine learning and AI are also advancing, it seems, at a breakneck pace. Can you drill down on how machine learning fits in. So specifically, like let's take uh, self-driving cars, Tesla, right? The challenge there, it seems, from my naive perspective, it's like everybody, not everybody, my kid thinks he can, but he can't. I will tell you that. (laughs) Thinks they can drive a car. And I think I can drive a car, right? And the challenge is, can you get this stupid AI to not run (laughs) people over, right? Um, To do something that everybody takes for granted, 
but I, I'm thinking like in, in, in cell biology, machine learning is kind of different. It's meant to, to appreciate the nuances that humans just, we don't have the brains to, to appreciate. We don't, can't see all the things at once the way a computer does. So we can't see the meta. Is that kind of true? The machine learning in the case of Salino is meant to, to appreciate the nuance that humans uh, can't recognize? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, you know, AI is definitely, it's huge in the self-driving car um, field. And I have no ego about my ability to drive cars. <laughs> Please, someone develop an algorithm so that I don't have to do it anymore. I hate driving. Um, but <laughs> but in the case of cell biology, you know, it's um, AI is very hot right now, but it's not magic. There's a principle in AI, very sophisticatedly named, crap in, crap out. So basically, your machine learning algorithm is only as good as the training data that you feed it. Um, and so that's where the stem cell biology becomes really important. Because if we want to train a machine learning algorithm to, let's say, out of a population of dopaminergic neurons that are going to be transplanted into a patient, find two or three or four or five potentially cancerous cells, you have to give it a very robust training data set. Um, but it does exactly what you're saying. The machine learning algorithm, it's not magic. It's looking at features that are visible in the images, but that humans just wouldn't be as good at detecting because we don't have the same computational powers to recognize patterns. And some humans are really good at this, but usually, at least this is my experience of talking to different labs, every lab kind of has their you know, one star scientist that's very good at that particular process and they have magic hands and they're way better at generating perfect cells than everyone else in the lab. Um, so there are some humans that get really good at what they do, but then it's almost an artisanal process. If one person is really good at it and it's difficult to replicate and transfer that knowledge, um, you don't have to worry about that with the machine. Humans have good days and bad days. Machines don't. Sometimes Zoom does, but, <laughs> but in general, machines are very consistent. And so it's it bodes well for generating a process where you want to make thousands and thousands of therapies that are going to be transplanted into patients. You don't want any single one of those therapies to, to be unsafe or um, to not be efficacious. So. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%, but I'm glad you mentioned that golden rule of machine learning, crap in, crap out, because that's really what this is dependent on, is a training data set that's good. And unfortunately, the reality of stem cell biology is there is a lot of heterogeneity and you know mixed differentiation and variability in differentiation. So you got your work cut out for you, Dr. Madrid. So we're <laughs> going to shift away from Salino for a little bit. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about your backstory because you have an amazing backstory that we really want to highlight here today. So we have to you know, talk about how you started off as a journalism major at college <laughs> before you dropped out. We did our research. We did our research. <laughs> you headed home. Yep. You started over at Riverside Community College here in L.A., which is where I'm at. And eventually you ended up at UCLA, which is where you majored in biophysics and the rest is history, right? That's what led you to Harvard for your PhD in nanoscience. And now you took a leap of faith and decided to join Selena. But before taking this leap of faith, you had a previous leap of faith, right? You decided to actually take a complete 180 career-wise in college and head home. That's something that a lot of students would probably find terrifying. But in your <laughs> case, it seemed like it was a perfect decision. So what was it like at that time to actually make that decision? And would you recommend it to others who are contemplating this shift in passions during college? Oh, yeah. And it's funny, you know, thinking about it now, it sounds terrifying. But at the moment, I hadn't really, it seemed very obvious. So when I was coming out of high school, I didn't have a good sense of what I wanted to do, I guess. I had gotten into NYU. Um, I was from California, and I really wanted to experience something new. New York seemed very, very new. It's on, you know, the entire opposite side of the country. And I think journalism sounded maybe glamorous to me. So I decided to major in journalism. I didn't have a very good reason for majoring in journalism. And I'm terrible at writing. I hate writing. It's very painful, like blood, sweat, and tears process for me. And who would have known writing is important for journalism? So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel at home there. And I didn't feel, um, I wasn't really excited by the work I was doing. So it was, it was honestly a pretty easy process for me to drop out. And it was funny because 
I made this decision very quickly. I didn't drop out at the end of a semester, at the end of the year. I dropped out in the middle of a semester. But I dropped out, moved back to California, and basically just started over. Um, and I, I started over by taking classes at Riverside Community College, which you mentioned. And what I noticed was that I, while I didn't enjoy writing, I really enjoyed my science classes and I was good at them. So I got to the point where I was so excited about these concepts that I was being taught that I would hold kind of like mini sessions or mini lectures outside of class for other students in class who are struggling. And my professors noticed this. They helped me get a job as a supplemental instructor at Riverside Community College so that I could get paid for doing that. Um, but it really, it really fostered my interest in science. And those teachers at Riverside Community College, I will always be eternally grateful for because they supported me. They encouraged me to apply to um, UCLA to study physics or biophysics, which I did. And at UCLA, I had a very lovely mentor named Amy Roat, and she welcomed me into her research lab, even though I hadn't done any research before. So Riverside Community College is very good at offering these types of opportunities to students, but I just hadn't really thought about it. It wasn't on my radar until I got to UCLA. So when I was at UCLA is when I really started doing research and actively hands-on working on biological problems, but with an engineering perspective and an engineering spin. Um, and then from UCLA, it was, again, my mentors were very encouraging, and they had encouraged me to apply to to grad school to do a PhD. And I thought, I'll try it. Let's see. If I don't like it, I can always master out. That was my plan. I was like, I'll try the PhD. If I don't like it, I can master out. So it's not a big deal. Um, and I was only going to apply to to schools in California because I had been to NYU. I didn't like it. So I thought, maybe I just don't like the East Coast. So I'm going to apply to all of these UCs. Um, and the the mentor at UCLA who was in charge of this research program and who was writing one of my letters of recommendation forced me to apply to at least one college on the East Coast. So I said, okay, if I'm going to apply to a university on the East Coast, I'm just going to apply to one. I'll apply to Harvard. They have a very good applied physics program. And I got in and I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. And, um, and so I decided to go there. And I kind of always had this, you know, this idea in the back of my mind, if I don't like it, it's no problem. I can leave, do something else, basically what I did at NYU. But I fell in love with the work there. I um, fell in love with this laser project. It's so cool. And I had started doing nanofabrication in the clean room, which is incredibly fun. It's almost meditative spending time in the clean room. So I, I obviously stuck around. Um, and Nabiha and I never had plans to be entrepreneurs. But we had developed this laser-based technology, and we were talking to scientists, and it seemed like something that was important to commercialize. So it's funny because none of these things were plans that I had starting out, but it all, it's all worked out really well. Um, and I think a big part of it is because I had good mentors, I had good collaborators, I had good colleagues, um, and that's that's really helped with this entire process. So if someone were thinking about switching fields mid-college, you know, college is not that late in one's career. I would 100% recommend switching if you think something else might be more interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's an inspiration. I just want to uh, countermand a piece of your your model there, which was to leave New York in the first place. All right. You in a room. <laughs> With your Harvard and your L.A. connection. Yeah, great. All right. We all love the warm weather. I don't know what you guys like about Boston. Harvard is not warm weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell I, me about it. I, I've warmed up to the East Coast now. I snowboard. Well, which, you, um, you slept on New York. Me, yeah. No, I appreciate the winters now. <laughs> but the key was having an outdoor activity during winter. The first, the first year or two, those were tough. Well, I would I would recommend one of your first moves when you guys are running the whole world at Salino is build a satellite office in New York. All right. Give it another try. Arun, we don't need you over here. You could stay in L.A. Um, but talking about your your experience, you know, I, I guess you learned uh, from your own personal experience. And as you kind of directed to the to the young people out there, you got to go after what you're interested in. 
despite the risk or cost to your professional timeline. And as you said, you're, you're not even thinking about it really, right? You're just putting one foot in front of the other. And uh, if the passion's there and the hard work, it, it, it pans out for the most part for most people. Um, but you've also, as Arun alluded to there, you made a bold choice professionally starting a company right out of your doctorate. Um, clearly the tech you developed played a large role in that decision. And you, as you said, the demand was there, right? It's an important piece of, uh, of technology, but I bet there's a lot of newly minted PhDs, even with your impressive stable of patents that might be intimidated by the so-called exit from the academic track. Is that even a factor for you? Uh, and scientists of your generation, I feel like an old man saying that, but I, I have to ask, is it a factor for you and your ilk, uh, this idea that it's tough to find your way back on to the tenure track? Would you even be interested? So I've, I've never really been aiming for that tenure track professor position. So it wasn't, it probably wasn't as difficult for me to jump into the startup life, um, compared to how it would be for some folks, because I know I have a lot of friends who that is their main goal and their main dream. And it's, and it's very important to them. Um, so if, if someone were struggling with that decision, what I would say would be to find some mentors in the startup space, because when you're in grad school, you're surrounded by mentors in academia. So I think it could be hard to to have a really balanced view of what the two paths look like. Mm. Um, so my approach would just be to talk to as many people as possible, understand what the different paths look like. But um, I, I can totally sympathize that that would be a scary decision if if your main you know goal that you've had for so long was to become a tenure track professor. But it's a tough path. It's very competitive. Mm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Academia is no longer the default career path. And yeah. you can find tremendous success just by doing a PhD and then immediately pivoting to, say, entrepreneurship, such as what you've done. And you are exemplifying the new generation of scientists. And and I guess I'm one of those generational scientists as well. So Dalen can be the old man here and we can be the next gen of scientists. <laughs> you so. kids with your tweeting. <laughs> we are on Twitter. This guy's still not on Twitter, but we'll get around to that. But anyways, <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Dr. Madrid. It's been a lot of fun. We don't always get the chance to talk to folks from biotech. Um, and it's really exciting what you guys are working on at Selena with lasers, pew, pew, pew. And of course, <laughs> tremendous application to stem cell biology as well. And before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions. The first being, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not? Okay, so um, one piece of advice or just a way of thinking that was introduced to me the first year of my PhD. So I was a, a new grad student um, and I was trying to kind of cobble together some sort of collaboration or some sort of plan for the next five years. And I wasn't sure what it should look like and I wasn't sure what strategy to take. And one of my mentors asked me, well, what would the best case scenario be for you? Like, what would the best case collaborator be for you? And it was, um, it's silly because it sounds so simple, but it was kind of a revelation for me to think like, oh yeah, I can just imagine the absolute best case scenario and then go for that and see how it goes hmm. and then work from there. Uh, so that was actually, it sounds simple, but that was really, really good advice for me. And sometimes when I'm thinking about things now, I uh, try to remember that way of thinking because sometimes I'll be looking at different, you know, different products that we could be working on. And I'm like, oh, this has this challenge associated with it. This has that challenge associated with it. But I think it's really cool to just think like, okay, if we could solve every single challenge, best case scenario, what would we go for? And then just start from there and work back if you need to. That's solid advice and very optimistic advice. I'm a big fan of that. And finally, what's the biggest misconception about science that you would like to resolve? Um, that's interesting. So I think, um, one one misconception that really bothers me is that you have to have some sort of innate ability to succeed in science. And I think it's a really damaging misconception that I hear a lot. I hear a lot of students saying like, oh, I'm just not good at math. No one's born being good at calculus. It's something that you develop. Like if you put in enough time, if you have good enough teachers, if you have a good enough support network, you can get good at that. Um, and there's research to show this. And I think it's sad because I think there are a lot of folks especially individuals who come from families where they don't have a scientist in their life, 
who are turned off from science or never even really consider it as a career path because they just think they're naturally not good. And that's just not true. Um, so I think that is the misconception in science that I have the biggest problem with that I wish that I hope our new generation uh, does not have. Yeah, that's such a great point, because especially nowadays where you're so multidisciplinary, you know, all the science, you, you get a guy who does that. You know what I mean? I got a yeah. guy who does calculus. What do you mean? I don't need to. I, I, who does calculus in the lab anyway? I don't know anybody right? who's ever Never used done any kind of integration <laughs> of anything, for God's sakes. But um, yeah, I mean, those are two good uh, gems, uh, Marina. Thank you so much again for joining us. This is a fun episode with a fun guest. And we got to have you back on again. But until then, we will say farewell. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. You can get the show notes there, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stem cell podcast or via email at info at stem to give us feedback or to suggest some guests. This was a great show. Fun talking to someone in industry. They're the ones that are going to get this into us guys. You know, these cells, they can't stay on the bench forever. They got to get into the clinic and Marin is going to make that happen. Tune in in a couple weeks. We'll have another fine episode for you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.